I invite you to join with me in your copy of the Holy Scriptures to Matthew chapter number two. Matthew chapter number two this morning. The days before Christmas are full of anticipation and expectation. The day of Christmas is filled with energy and excitement, but now it's the day after Christmas. Christmas is over, and now we must deal with the, the after Christmas blues. Have you ever experienced the, the after Christmas blues? You know what I'm talking about? The after Christmas blues are the lows in life after the highs of Christmas. And for the last month, we've been shopping like crazy and eating like crazy and racing to every Christmas program and Christmas party that we can possibly fit into our schedules. And we've sung the songs of the season and we've enjoyed the giving and the receiving of, of gifts. But, but now what do we do the day after Christmas? Well, we discard the Christmas tree and we pay the credit card bills and we deal with the cold winter, the dark months of, of, of winter, and then we return to the boring lives that we all live. Bah humbug. Christmas is over. And I thought perhaps there, there was a similar experience for those after that first Christmas if you consider the shepherds, we, we spoke of the shepherds just a moment ago. The angel of the Lord appeared to them while they were out in their fields keeping watch over their flocks by night and they went with haste to Bethlehem to see the thing that had come to pass and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus lying in the manger there and they made widely known the saying that was told them concerning the child. How exciting that night must have been. But then for the shepherds, they had to return back to the fields, back to their flocks, back to the same old, same old. I thought of Mary, consider Mary, and an angel appeared to her and told her that she would bear the Christ child. And what might have been an uncomfortable pre pregnancy, both, both physically and socially, it passed so quickly because Mary magnified the Lord and her spirit rejoiced in God for, for all generations would now call her blessed. God had done great things for her. And you can read Mary's Magnificant there in, in Luke chapter 1. And when it was time to deliver, Joseph had to go to Bethlehem and, and so they made the trip together and Jesus was born. But then what? What about the day after Christmas? And I don't know that Mary suffered postpartum depression, but I suspect that there was something of a settling in her spirit after all of the excitement of the whole ordeal. The Bible only tells us that she pondered these things in her heart. So after experiencing the highs of Christmas Day, how do we process the lows of life in the coming year? Or as I've written there in your notes, where do we find comfort after Christmas? The answer is by knowing that God is fulfilling his purposes and his plans in this world. From Matthew 2, I prepared a message titled Comfort after Christmas. Let's pause for prayer and then we'll look at Matthew chapter 2 together. God in heaven, we thank you so much once again for the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as unfaithful people who are, are worn, are bitter, are tired, are lonely, we come for you have been born. 
And we don't come with fear because we know that you have brought the one that, that casts our fear away the Lord Jesus Christ. And now God, as we consider the Bible narrative of the circumstances that took place after Christmas, I pray that you would comfort us with these truths. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You have your Bibles open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number two. Look at verse number one. The Bible says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, after Christmas, Matthew is going to tell us what happened after Christmas. Allow me to read Matthew 2 verses 1 through 11. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born? who has been born king of the Jews, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you Bethlehem and the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. When you have found him, bring word back to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house... They saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. When they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know how much time had passed after the birth of Jesus, but Jesus was no longer in the place of his birth, in that stable of sorts there in the manger, but he was in a house where the wise men found the young child with his mother Mary in verse number 11. Now, I think it's important for us to note in verse number 11 that the wise men didn't worship Mary. It explicitly says that they worshiped Jesus. They worshiped Jesus by giving gifts to him. They gave him gifts. They opened their treasures and they gave him the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, for that is the intuitive expression of love and worship. It's in giving. What can I give him poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I'd sure do my parts. So what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. And here after Christmas, the wise men presented their gifts to Jesus. But then now in verse 12, things take a turn after Christmas. A turn for the worse. God warned the wise men not to report back to Herod in Jerusalem, but to return to their home in the east by another way, because Herod had wicked intent. Herod intended to destroy the Christ child. Look at verse number 12. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. In verse 13 then, God warned Joseph to to flee to Egypt because Herod wanted to destroy Jesus. The word translated flee there in verse 13 is the Greek fuego. It's it's from where we get our word fugitive. It's one who escapes something or someone. Look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt 
and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. If you're following the the brief outline that I prepared for you, number one, there is a fear of fleeing from threat. The day after Christmas, or at some point after Christmas, there is fear of fleeing from threat. And if you can imagine gathering your family in the middle of the night and telling them that they must leave everything behind and flee to the border as fugitives to become refugees in another country. You have a young wife. You have a new baby. What will you do? How will you live? By God's providence, you have the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that that can help finance your journey if you survive. But then what? The angel told Joseph in verse 13 to stay there until I bring you word. Okay, but when will that be? Will that be a day, a, a week, a month, a year, maybe multiple years? The best that historians and Bible scholars can discern, it was more than a few months. There's no biblical or historical record of Mary and Joseph's final destination, but we might assume that Joseph took Mary and Joseph to the city of Alexandria, Egypt. Why Alexandria, Egypt? Well, Alexander the Great established a sanctuary for the Jews in Alexandria, the city of Alexandria, during the intertestamental period. And it was there in the city of Alexandria that the the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek language. We know it as the Septuagint or the the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the, the copy of the Old Testament scriptures that the people in the first century would have used. And according to the philosopher and historian Philo, by the time of Jesus' death, the city of Alexandria, Egypt, was home to, to some one million Jews. And so we might imagine that Joseph takes Mary and Joseph to the city of Alexandria, Egypt, or perhaps some other city in Egypt. It, it doesn't necessarily matter, but, but imagine the fear that they felt in leaving Bethlehem, in leaving Israel, in fleeing to Egypt. The fear was real. And their fear in these days after Christmas didn't go away. In fact, if you cheat ahead to verse 22, Matthew 2, verse 22, when God finally summoned Joseph back to Judea, look at verse 22, he was still afraid to go there. And folks, now that Christmas is over, we face a new year. And we don't know what a day will bring forth. We don't know what threats are on the horizon. We don't know what will happen. We don't know if what will happen will happen. There is threat of pandemic that continues. There is the fear of inflation. There is uncertainty at work or at home, change that that is coming to your life in the days after Christmas. And that threat might cause fear to grip your hearts. I certainly think that was the case after the high of the birth of Jesus was the low of life as Mary and Joseph dealt with fear and they fled for their lives. Look at verse 16, Matthew 2, verse number 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. 
Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We complain, I, I complain, about government overreach and executive mandates in our own country. But nothing can be compared to what King Herod decreed in this case. King Herod mandated, government mandates, that all of the baby boys in Bethlehem and in the surrounding regions be killed in an effort to destroy Jesus. I cannot imagine the horror of that order. How many baby boys were ripped from their mother's arms? How many baby boys were taken from their homes and killed by Herod in an effort to destroy Jesus? I call this number two, the pain of weeping over loss. The pain of weeping over loss in the days after Christmas. This is the only place in the Bible where we are told of this massacre, but it's not surprising if you read history's record of the crimes that Herod committed against those he thought were plotting against them, even against his own family members. In fact, Herod was so paranoid that the Emperor Augustine reportedly said that it was better to have been Herod's sow, Herod's pig, than Herod's son. Because a sow had a better chance of surviving life in a Jewish community than Herod's own son had of surviving in his own home. There was a play on words because in both Greek and in English, the words sow and son have only one letter difference between the two. History reports that Herod murdered one of his wives, three of his sons, countless others. And folks, can you imagine the pain and the weeping that occurred after that first Christmas as all these baby boys are killed? I don't know what this coming year will bring for us, but I think that we can expect there will be some tears as we will, to some degree, suffer pain and loss. And the sentimental romance of Christmas will give way to the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. That's what's happening here in in Matthew chapter 2. After the high of, of Christmas day is the low of life as Mary and Joseph flee in fear and as so many people weep because of the pain of their their loss. Look at verse 19. Now when Herod was dead Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. There is still fear that's gripping Joseph's heart. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now help me to interpret this. Is this the Bible's version of they lived happily ever after? Perhaps, but no. In fact, it appears that at some point along the way Joseph died. We have 
no more record of, of, of Joseph just after some years of, of Mary and Joseph looking and finding Jesus in the temple. Joseph kinda disappears from any biblical record. Evidently, Joseph died. We know that Mary, as she stood at the cross, was alone. A widow, it appears to be. So Joseph dies, and then we know that Jesus goes to the cross and dies. What comfort was there after Christmas? Folks, things were downhill from, from that Christmas day. And there is a significant theme that Matthew has established in this, this account, and, and we've missed it because I've read so quickly, I've read so much, but it was the fulfillment of God's plan, what God ordered to be. And this is the comfort that we can know after Christmas. The comfort that we can claim after Christmas is number three, the joy of fulfilling God's plan. The joy of fulfilling God's plan. Now, I don't have subpoints prepared for you in your notes because I prepared and submitted these notes on Wednesday because, of course, the, the, the Christmas holiday weekend, and, and, and yet my message was incomplete, but I had to have something to print, right? So we printed number three without subpoints. I have subpoints for you. I have five bullet points that you can fill in there following number three, the, the joy of fulfilling God's points. And, and these five subpoints or bullet points are found here in the text. I want to show them to you. The first is back in chapter one, verse 21. And the, these bullet points are, are, are going to be points in the scripture text. Chapter one, verse 22. Look there. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So subpoint number letter, letter A, or just a bullet point there, Matthew 1, verse 22 and 23, is Isaiah 7, verse 14. Matthew 1, verse 22 and 23, is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Okay, second, Second bullet point for you here. Look at chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. The second bullet point, Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, is from the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So we have in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, comes from Isaiah 7, 4, 14. And now we have Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, comes to us from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. There's a third, number 3. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Chapter 2, verse 15, comes from Hosea 11, verse number 1. Do you see what's happening here? Hosea 11, verse 1. And let me pause for a moment at this point and allow me to, to talk to us about Matthew's use of the Old Testament prophets, specifically Hosea. In fact, I want you to turn with me to, to the book of Hosea. 
Find the, the minor prophet of Hosea. Just for a moment, we, we take a bit of a detour, a bit of an excursus this morning. 700 years before Jesus was born, Hosea was God's prophet to the nation of Israel. And Hosea spoke at a time of, of Israel's unfaithfulness and served as a living example of God's faithfulness to Israel's unfaithfulness, God's unconditional love, and his commitment for Israel when they were unfaithful to God. How so? Hosea married a wife named Gomer. Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, her, her husband. Gomer became an adulteress and a prostitute who sold herself to others. Look at Hosea chapter 3. Hosea 3, just quickly, God commanded Hosea in Hosea 3 verse number 1, go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods. And so Hosea did just that. Hosea purchased his wife back for himself, chapter 3, verse 2, for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. What did Hosea say to her? Hosea 3, verse number 3. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be towards you. And in the same way, Gomer was faithful. I'm sorry, in the same way that Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, Israel had been unfaithful to God. In the same way that Hosea redeemed Gomer, God purposed, he planned to be faithful to Israel. Now to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. God calls Israel my son. Hosea 11 verse number one. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, in this case, at this time, Hosea was not declaring predictive prophecy. Hosea is simply recounting history. And Hosea was referencing an occasion when God brought Israel out of Egypt. We know it as the Exodus. And the Exodus of Israel out of Egypt is the most significant historic event in the history of ancient Israel. You remember Moses and the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. That fabulous story, that event took place 700 years before Hosea. Yet even though God called Israel out of Egypt, they continued to, to turn from him. And, and I want to take the time just to read some of Hosea 11. Hosea 11 verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refused to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they called to the Most High, none at all exalt him. How shall I give you up, Ephraim? That's another term for Israel. How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? These were cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim or Israel, for I am God and not man, 
the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. All of this in Hosea is the promise of Israel's return from exile. But when we come to Matthew chapter 2, after Christmas, Matthew applied Hosea 11, verse number 1, to the return of God's son Jesus from, from, from Egypt. And so what's going on here? Bible scholars debate and they disagree over some of the, the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. In this case, is Matthew claiming that Hosea predicted the flight of Mary and Joseph and Jesus to Egypt? We know that Hosea, in this case, was not declaring prophecy. He was recounting history. So then how is it that Matthew, in Matthew 2, verse 15, says that this was fulfilled? And for some of you rigorous Bible students, you you may find this to be fascinating, but it's the interpretive key to our passage in Matthew chapter 2. Bible scholars, like our own Dr. Roy Beecham, call this analogical correspondence. The New Testament writers, like Matthew in this case, is looking back at events described in the Old Testament and is finding parallels or correspondence. To say that something was fulfilled doesn't demand that it was explicitly predicted. In fact, two-thirds of the cases of the use of, of the word fulfilled in the New Testament have nothing to do with prophecy. And so when Matthew chapter 2 says that this was fulfilled, one can fulfill a prediction like prophecy or one can fulfill other things. You can fulfill an order. You can fulfill a prescription. You can fulfill a responsibility. And so under inspiration of the Spirit of God, Matthew was able to identify the analogy of Israel coming up out of Egypt and apply it to Jesus coming up from Egypt as fulfilling God's purposes and plans. Let me give you a different example that perhaps you're more familiar with. In John chapter 3, the Apostle John used this same analogy of correspondence, or sometimes we call it typology, when John wrote, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he was not prophetically predicting Jesus' crucifixion on a cross. But the Apostle John is able to look back to the Old Testament and identify an analogy that corresponds to Jesus being lifted up so that we can look and live. And so it is that all these things were written before for our learning. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, now all these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition. So back to Matthew chapter two. Back to Matthew chapter two, verse number 15. When Matthew says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying out of Egypt I've called my son, Matthew is 
identifying a correspondence or an analogy. But there's another case in Matthew chapter two of Matthew pointing back to the Old Testament and that's in chapter two, verse 17. And this would be the fourth bullet point or the fourth sub point in your notes. Matthew two, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying... A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So Matthew 2, verse 17, is connected to Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Jeremiah 31, 15. If we were to turn to Jeremiah 31, just as we just did to Hosea, chapter 11, we would discover the very same theme, thing. In its context, in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah was referring to the weeping of the nation of Israel over the death of the children when the Assyrians conquered Israel, when Babylon conquered Jerusalem. Jeremiah, in this case, was not making a predictive prophecy, but was rather explaining how that the Hebrew children were slaughtered. And so for Matthew, the parallel is plain. The correspondence is plain. And Matthew is identifying how that Hebrew children would be slaughtered at the hands of non-Hebrew people. Rachel here, as Jeremiah names her, was considered by many to be the mother of the, the nation, just as Jacob or Israel is, the, is a patriarch of the nation. And, and so there's the mention of, of Rachel. So there's there, there's four different bullet points or subpoints I've, I've given you. The, the first is chapter 1, verse 22, which corresponds to Isaiah 7, 14. The second is Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, which corresponds to Micah 5, verse 2. The third is Matthew 2, verse 15, that corresponds to Hosea 11, verse number 1. The third is here, chapter 2, verse 17, that corresponds with Jeremiah 31, verse 5. 15, I'm sorry. Jeremiah 31, 15. And then there's a fifth. And that's Matthew 2, verse 23. Matthew 2, verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. There is a fifth reference to Old Testament prophecy or Old Testament narrative that is fulfilled or completed here. And this is an unknown assertion by unnamed prophets. I don't have an Old Testament reference to give you here. We don't have a biblical record of that specific statement, but evidently Matthew and Matthew's readers would have understood this reference through oral tradition at a minimum that there was some recognition that he would be called a Nazarene. We know Nazareth as a small town It was infamous as the headquarters of the Roman garrison in Galilee. And those from Nazareth were despised for their association with the Romans. And it was for that reason that Nathanael asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Of course, Jesus came from Nazareth. So folks, my time is up. I've given you too many references to, to process here this morning. But after the highs of Christmas Day, What comfort is there for us in the lows of life? What comfort is there after Christmas? And the comfort after Christmas for us is the same as the comfort that can be found in in the Gospel of Matthew. It's this, God has done great things. 
in fulfillment of his eternal purpose and plan. Our comfort after Christmas is this. God is doing great things in fulfillment of his purpose and plan. We can take comfort that God's purposes and God's plans are being fulfilled. All of the circumstances that we read of this morning in Matthew 2 are not the random coincidence of fate. They are the intentional design of a sovereign God. And all of the circumstances that we will experience this week and this next year are not the circumstances of random coincidence or fate, but they are the intentional design of a sovereign God. Isaiah 46, verses nine through 11. Remember the former things of old. Remember your Old Testament scripture. Remember the Old Testament prophets as Matthew has done for us here in Matthew 2. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Folks, I submit to you that God is working his will his way. And God is fulfilling or bringing to completion his plan and his program. And the comfort for us after Christmas this year is that while we will experience lows, we will feel feel the fear and we will shed the tears. But through it all, we can look back with joy and see what God has done. We can look forward with joy and know that God is doing something great. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would give us comfort after Christmas, that you would give us joy in our minds and our hearts as we know you are fulfilling your purposes and plans for each of us individually, for us corporately, for Israel and for your church in your redemptive plan. God, we don't know what a a day will bring forth and we brace ourselves for some shoe to drop, some calamity to occur, some crisis to happen. Lord, the Christmas blues are sure to follow, but may we find comfort and joy in the coming of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of your purposes and plans. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.